I'm going to be very candid with you. We are living in a computer program reality. Welcome everyone to Simulation Nation, your portal to all things virtual. I'm your host, Johnny Android, and I'm here to keep you informed about all that's happening in the metaverse. We record our episodes live at Altspace every week, and you can join us from your PC or VR headset. Just log into Altspace, join our Simulation Nation channel, and teleport in to offer your opinion, question, or whatever. Today, we have the next episode of Futurosity's Fix It Picks, where Futurosity picks some of the flicks that shaped our ideas of virtual reality and where we're headed. And this one is in honor to Douglas Trumbull, uh, the genius of the special effects of 2001 Space Odyssey, Encounters of the Third Kind, Star Trek, Blade Runner, a bunch of others, uh, who unfortunately passed this corporeal plane to become a star child himself on February 7, 2022. Uh, the film we are revisiting today was Douglas's directorial <laughs> debut. Brainstorm star Christopher Walken is a scientist who invents a brain-computer interface enabling sensations to be recorded from a person's brain converted to tape for others to experience. Sure, again, to help us co-host the Futurosities, Flicks and Picks is Futurosity himself. Hey, thanks for having me again, guys. So oh, this is gonna be a fun one. Very, very fun. Yeah. You know, I feel like uh there's it's it's been a little while since we've had you on the stage. We've been busy with other interviews, but this next month is like the Futurosity month because we are co-hosting <laughs> two at least two events, and then we're having two Futurosity flips and picks. So I, I'm very, very happy to have it on the stage. Uh we're not worthy oh. of Futurosity. <laughs> oh, same back, same back. Oh, thank you. Awesome. Um, before we dive into this episode, we should just give a little state of the nation. Uh, very exciting that on uh, we've sort of been pushing our YouTube channel a little bit more. And this last week, for some reason, two of our episodes completely blew up. And they were both sort of Futurosity episodes. One was definitely a Futurosity Flicks and Picks episode. The other one was just a Futurosity episode. So our Terminator 2 episode has now over 19,000 views which is pretty wow. crazy. Wow. Wow. Our Matrix 2 episode is over 8,500 views and they're still climbing. So how, how crazy is that? Yeah. So if anyone, out there, if anyone out there knows how these algorithms work, how we could cheat the algorithms to make all of our videos have 90,000 views. Yeah, I'm looking at you, Blue Moon. I know you're the secret. You know the secret to the Matrix somehow or other. Please let us know because... We want to get the word out there. We want to get the content out there. And we don't know. Sometimes it hits. Sometimes it doesn't. It's a kind of a mystery. It is a mystery. But hopefully, little by little, you know, more fans out there. Give us a click, a like, subscribe. It all works out. Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, we've got our future Aussie flicks and picks on there. This is our fourth official episode, I think, right? We did Floor. We did Terminator 2. We did uh, Snow Crash, the seminal uh, metaverse novel. and now. Oh, and then surrogates is coming up. We're good. We got surrogates uh, will be released, and then we got this one. So we're getting there. We're building it up. Yeah, nicely. little by little. I'm loving it. Absolutely. Cool. Well, uh, good to see everyone here. Space Cake, nice to see you again. Maple Fish, uh, tell Stu back there. He does. And I know Blue Moon is here because she is actually a fan of Brainstorm. So we definitely want to hear your opinion about all things Brainstorm because you know, there really isn't that many people who I feel like have seen this movie. Um, it was supposed to be Douglas Trumbull's huge break into the director uh, director chair after he was a special effects wizard for so long. And the production was kind of mired in, in controversy and problems, uh, including um, on the unfortunate death of one of the stars, Natalie Wood. 
uh, who people may remember from Miracle on 34th Street when she was a child, and then she was uh, across from James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause. This was her final film. She wasn't even finished um, filming it uh, when she uh, passed away in very strange circumstances off of the coast of Los Angeles uh, between Catalina and Los Angeles. Christopher Walken was there, her husband was there, and there's a little bit of controversy. I don't know, have you, did you look into that a little bit and read about that? It's kind of crazy. It, the whole situation's very bizarre and very sad. I mean, they only had about three weeks left um, of principal photography when she died suddenly. And the scary thing about it was the fact that the studio decided, hey, we're just going to just make this into an insurance claim. Why continue for another three weeks if we lost one of our co-leads? So essentially, Douglas Trumbull had to go through all these extra steps to you know, work things out with the insurance, try to secure financing, and they actually use supposedly Natalie Wood's sister as a body double for certain scenes because there were mm -hmm. sequences where she was still required for filming. And unfortunately, they, you know, they just worked their best around it. You know, the show must go on. Uh, but one little thing we have to note, this is actually um, Douglas Trumbull's second movie. He did... Mm. Silent Running, which was very, very a quintessential sci-fi film that inspired right. Star Wars directly. Because remember, R2-D2 was based off of Huey, Dewey, and Louie, the robots that Trumbull designed and also um, directed in that film. Right. I totally forgot about that. He, I thought that he did the effects for Silent Running. I forgot that he directed this. You're right. This is not his debut. Really, this may have been his last film then. Right? Because yeah, he had like a 10... He had a gap at a least a gap. decade, I think, because I think Silent Running was like around um, 71, 72, and then this was 83, but filmed around 80, 81. Yeah. So yeah, there's so, definitely gaps. Yeah, and what happened, of course, uh, he had such a horrible experience here because MGM uh, wanted, like you said, put it into an insurance claim. They weren't going to finish the movie. He had to fight to get it finished. They finally finished it, and then it gets out into theaters and it tanks. And so it's like career which could have been something uh you know quite great uh kind of fell short and he i think he never recovered i think he got burnt out about this and he said i never will make another movie in hollywood again uh it was it, i took up three or four years of my life and it's it's like it's fighting a war every day and uh he kind of gave up and uh it's it's really sad we know we'll never know what great movies he could have come out with I'm telling you, and also the innovations that he participated in. I mean, his resume when it comes to visual effects, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, from 2001 Space Odyssey, you know, to, you know, Close Encounters and so forth. I mean, he contributed so much to film, and it's such a shame that, you know, because of this tumultuous experience of filming, that he wasn't able to explore more of the craft. Absolutely. And, you know, it's so interesting that you could tell so much that he did those movies, because a lot of the effects... Uh, techniques that he used in 2001 in Star Trek. He also uses in this. So he was kind of like collecting the best of. And I mean, he was going to learn how to make movies. He did it from the masters, right? Stanley Kubrick, Steven Spielberg, Ridley Scott. I mean, this guy worked with all the greats. And he kind of tried to take as much as he could from them. But I do feel, in uh, interestingly enough, that you can tell that he was a uh, technical person who was very adept at all of the special effects and all of the robotics and all of that maybe not so much the story. So let's talk about the, your overall thoughts uh, in terms of uh, how, this, how this movie all comes together. Well, yeah, I guess, do you want me to just kind of go through the plot just a little bit, just uh, or just the basic overview? Because, I mean, sure. the main concept is about, you know, transferring information from someone's brain from a brain-computer interface 
into a consumer product or possibly a military product. That's the main focus of the film. It's Christopher Walken's character, Mike, his wife, Karen. Also, of course, we have famous Nurse Ratchet. of course. She plays Lillian, who's his you know, co-worker and you know, team member as well. Essentially, we see them develop a technology that could record and scan experiences and feelings from a human brain and allows others to re-experience them. Either you could have the full experience or you could actually have short snippets and edit together, just like film. Um, that was one concept that they kind of kept repeating is that you could edit memories just like film, you know, using a standard slicing and tape, you combine memories into like a montage of sorts. So within that world, it brought up a lot of interesting questions. You know, you say, hey, well, what can we see and experience from others? You know, how can we communicate better? So all those basic principles and themes had a chance to explore, but they didn't really get deep into any of them. Essentially, it was a nice overview. It was a classic scientist discover something amazing. And of course, either the government or the corporation gets in the way. And essentially, Christopher Walken's character, Mike, decides to ultimately fight against the man. It's that it's a classic 80s trope of, you know, just like Project X and many other films where someone, you know, endears themselves within a scientific program and then suddenly it's taken out of their hands and they deal with the consequences ultimately. So overall, I mean, it, it, it established a fascinating theme. And of course, the concept of recording life's last moments. That's one of the biggest parts of this movie is one of the fellow collaborators on the project has a heart attack in the workplace and records her distinct experience of it. And that's the main driving force of the film is trying to figure out, I, Christopher Walken's character wants to see that recording to either honor you know, his associate and also just to feel an experience that's the scariest experience in life, which is death. There? Are you still there? Oh, yes. Yes, yes. Okay, perfect. I thought you were frozen again. Um, yeah. So, I, yeah. So, yeah. Exactly. Um, I, yeah. So, I I totally agree. So, this is. So, I, I'll say two things about this movie. So, um, I, I'm just curious who who has seen this recently. Has anyone here seen it recently, or has it been a while? Uh, yeah, maybe Blue Moon has seen it recently. So, I have never seen this movie, which is kind of shocking. I've always wanted to see it, and. Uh, one of the interesting things about it is that it is widely considered to be the first example of virtual reality technology put into a film, right? Don't think that that's true in the sense that uh, we have done on this show before uh, World on a Wire Part 1 and 2. So World on a Wire was made in 1973, a good 10 years before this one. It was done in Germany. So they, you could say that this is the first movie that deals with virtual reality ideas in an American movie. Uh, with with a big star like Christopher Walken. Um, so I think it's really interesting with the ideas that he's playing with. And I think Douglas Trumbull brought that to the table. He brought a, a really sophisticated idea of technology and where we were headed, right? Which I think was really, really cool. And I actually think that this movie was better than I expected. Like I was just like, oh my God, it's a Christopher Walken movie from 1982 about virtual reality. This is going to be so crazy. But like, in a bad way, maybe. Like I was like, oh, I can't wait to like, I can't wait to hate this movie. And I actually didn't hate it. It was actually better than I expected it to be. I thought that the ideas were really interesting. I thought it was put together in a really uh, good way. I will say that the one shortcoming for me is that it's uh, it's a great idea in search of a plot because there really is no plot here. It's really like they for they just didn't have that streamlined mission that Christopher Watts' character had. Like. 
basically in act one at the beginning, he's basically like, I invented this technology uh, and that's it, right? Whereas if they had just added a plot to it, like I invented this technology and now I'm going to explore the afterlife or, and now I'm going to rekindle relationship with my wife. And, and it was a through line that we could follow and it would have really brought everything to, or I'll take down an evil government organization by doing spying. I don't know, something that would have string, strung together all the interesting, the ideas they had into a, a spine. I think for me, that would have, held it with a little more momentum and a little more action towards the finish as it is it's a it's a little bit episodic which is a way of saying that you have this interesting idea and then you have this interesting idea and then you have this interesting idea but uh so in other words they had all of the set pieces they had all of the sequences that would have made a great movie just didn't have that spine that carried it from a to b for me uh so that's oh, i fully agree yeah. Oh, I fully agree. When you look at it, essentially, it felt like uh, one of those movies that went through extensive reshoots. That was one issue I had with it, where I suddenly realized, was this original intent? Was the original script flowing in the same way? Because same thing, Christopher Walken's character creates essentially one of the most global world-changing devices, and they barely explored even the surface level of it. I mean, the recording of you know the coworker's death that should have been like the most important thing. That should have been experienced in the middle of the movie, not at the very end. You know, that, that could have been a great driving and motivator because what would the government do if you had evidence of afterlife experiences and post-life, you know, would theologians get involved? Like there's so many other questions and they kind of just brought up some questions, but never had a chance to dig deep into them. So it did feel like most of it was surface level only. Amazing ideas, but not fully explored. This is definitely due yeah. for a remake in modern times. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't want to, you know, jump too far ahead because we will talk about the legacy at some point. But it did feel like a bunch of Black Mirror episodes strung together in other ways. So, like, you ever has anyone seen that episode? Be right back with Dom Hall Gleason, where he can record in his eyes the memories of the fights that he had yeah. with his wife, or he can replay moments with his wife that things didn't go well at a dinner party, and he could replay it and say, "Oh, what was it that was happening?" That felt like that was the first part of the movie, but then we get into like flatliners, you know, where it's like they're they're traveling into the afterlife and exploring what, what that's like. Um, and then, of course, a little bit like Strange Days, uh, if you remember that movie, which we yes. also covered here. Uh, it was written by James Cameron and directed by Catherine Bigelow. That was uh, about recording memories and then being able to sell it on the black market. So it's interesting it's really there was really a lot of ideas that were spawned out of this movie um and so it was a hotbed of ideas uh but again it, yeah if only it had focused on maybe one core idea that brought us from one point to the other i think it would have helped um but to the to your to your point also the quality of of the of the um filmmaking you know at this point in his career, Douglas Trumbull had three Oscars, uh, three Oscar nominations for his special effects. Louise Fletcher had one for Nurse Ratchet, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Uh, and Christopher Walken had been nominated for Deer Hunter, or did he win for Deer Hunter? I can't remember, but he was coming off. Ooh, a big... It was a big one. I mean, that cast is amazing, but essentially he didn't exercise as much as he could have out of them. You know what I mean? The, it felt like we had uneven performances where essentially, you know, Louise Fletcher, she was one kind of character from one kind of movie. And Christopher Walken was early beta Christopher Walken. You know, he was definitely, <laughs> definitely, you know, he wasn't fully into his whole, you know, thing just yet. 
And we had Natalie Wood, who was kind of wasted in many ways. I mean, it's her last performance. And I mean, she was a great actress and she had some chops, but they didn't really explore too much. It seemed like all the actors were kind of on a leash of sorts and they weren't able to go fully into their characters. Yeah. So I could kind of see... Yeah, I imagine that's partly because I, I and I just imagine that Douglas Trumbull would be a great technologist and great innovator with his robotics, but maybe not as much on the human side of things and not as adept at uh, at uh, performance and getting performance out of his actors. It is interesting that in pre-production, they went to the Esalon Institute in uh, California. I don't know if anyone here has been to Esalon. Um, I've never been. I've always wanted to go. It's kind of like it was where this sort of... Um, self-actualization movement in the 70s began uh, and then now they still hold workshops there for art and therapy and a whole bunch of different things it's kind of interesting. it's in big sur it's right on the coast and it's <laughs> really interesting so he took the entire uh cast there for like a week before they shot to sort of get into tune with character and expanding your mind and expanding your awareness and self-awareness and all of that stuff um, but i didn't feel that that came across in the performance uh, for what you're saying as well so it it kind of i was more impressed with the technology and the ideas than i was the performance for sure yeah the technology was great i mean when you think of it if this was done in maybe 1981 um just that we had autonomous machines we had robots we had autonomous manufacturing um you know they showed modems and portable right. computing also portable virtual reality i mean a lot of amazing visual effects and you know physical props were developed for this movie that looked absolutely beautiful i mean yeah. seeing the multiple iterations of the technology as they go from the you know the beta laboratory stage to trying to create a final product for the headset um the hat as they called it um essentially mm -hmm. you know start off as this huge clunky design which I, very very cyberpunk i mean every moving piece in it whole bunch of chips and yeah. wires just beautiful i love that i mean just yeah. as you see right there just yeah. Wonderful visual items in the movie. I mean, that was the main focus, it seemed. Um, before, before we move on from plot, there's two, the two plot points that I really didn't like. Uh, one was early on that hinted to me that it wasn't going to be like an all-time great movie. That, you know, he, Christopher Walken is experimenting with this thing on his head, and then he's got a... Um, one of his lab mates who's kind of like got a crazy sense of humor and is running around doing crazy things that he puts his hat onto the head of a chimpanzee as a joke. And I'm like, and Christopher Walken starts having like a chimpanzee because he can read <laughs> thoughts of a chimpanzee and feel what a chimpanzee feels. But he starts like having a talk episode and it's like, dude, like if this is a serious lab, you think that I just be like, ha ha, let's see what it happens if I put, you know, this hat on a cockroach or that and the guy goes insane from cockroach brain. Like that kind of stuff is felt like, okay, well, we're, you're getting a little bit, uh, you could have, it's like you could have had the Christopher Walken character want to push the envelope and want to do that. And everyone's telling him, no, don't do it. But he, they do it anyway. Then it would be from character as it was. It was from this zany like lab guy who just was like, that was kind of silly. And then later on, when the son tries on the hat uh, and he uh, experiences what it's like, I think, to have a, um, a meltdown or oh, no. Brainwashing. They, that's when the uh, government started to use the technology for brainwashing. And so the son gets brainwashed. And it's like, you're just going to look it around. The kid's just going to press a button and he's going to have like the brainwashing <laughs> technology in his brain. It's like, okay, well, little bits like that, the script could have used a little bit more work um, to kind of flesh out those details and make them character oriented as opposed to like 
oh, we got to make the plot move here. So let's just do this crazy thing. Um, anyway, I agree. It felt just like that. I mean, the son, it, uh, whenever there's children in the film, especially one like this, usually assume there's going to be peril at some point to just have the kid have some purpose. Because essentially the kid was in the pool every time you saw him in the movie. And finally he just says, oh, let me just try on dad's headset. And, you know, it, it was inevitable. But the funniest part is they left that plot dangling you know like the parents mm -hmm. never really check back in on the kid the kids in the hospital <laughs> the government's after him and the parents are like oh we got a text message quote unquote that says he's okay yeah. and you never see the kid again so yeah there are a lot of those dangling threads that i'm not sure if it was originally intended or if it was once again a byproduct of the reshoots it's really hard to tell but that was hilarious i mean the the parents were just like oh my goodness our child is about to die and oh whatever let's go explore the afterlife <laughs> right I do kind of yeah, funny. I do feel like it's a little bit of this uh, symptomatic of this, the same thing where a cinematographer is has a great career as a cinematographer, and then they decide to step into the director's chair. And what happens in in most cases uh, is that it the movies look amazing, but the story suffers. And uh, Wally Pfister would be a great example. And actually, he made a movie very similar for his. Uh, directorial debut. He did all of, a lot of uh, Chris Nolan's work, and then he did his directorial debut with Johnny Depp called Transcendence, which is uploading his brain to a computer, very similar in some ways. And for me, again, that movie, it's like, oh, like it looks like a Chris Nolan movie. It's almost a Chris Nolan movie, but it just misses the, the, the attention to story and the way to, to draw an audience emotionally into the story to carry us through it. Um, I feel like that suffers sometimes when cinematographers step into the director's chair. I guess this could also be said when special effects artists step into the director's chair. It's a, it's a, it's a very, um, it's a very delicate art, uh, to craft an emotional story that people are, uh, uh emotionally drawn into and empathize with the, uh, the main characters. It's, it's, it's it seems it should just go with the rest, but it does. It's very difficult. It is very uh, finicky and very delicate. And um, you know, in this case, I think they missed that as well. So um, true. Which, yeah. Which does bring us to the characters. I don't think there's too much to say about the characters. Let's have it, Cordelius. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this recently. The characters, I guess we're talking about the fact that there's a little bit lacking there. So for Chris Walken, for me, the only thing that was really interesting about this character that I thought they brought to it was that he had suffered a separation from his wife, right? Because of the fact that he was working so much on technology, he was working on creating this uh, uh, experimental um, um, machine. And then in a twist, he uses the machine to be able to go back into the memories of his wife and to go back into seeing the moments that their relationship went wrong. And then the first time in his life he could see the other side of the argument so he could see what it was like to be his wife fighting with him who was never around because he was always in the lab and then he was able to uh sympathize with that and and uh get back together with his wife i thought that was interesting and that was like a good character moment where he learned about uh his his uh workaholic behavior yeah, there's a nice reflection of characters in that one portion. It was kind of like the fun and games portion of the movie where the technology itself hasn't made a bad turn just yet. Um, but I did see a certain level of manipulation because essentially he played a Facebook on his wife. 
you know, when you look at Facebook, you know, it's not reality. People are showing segments of the best moments of their life and presented as an ongoing daily thing. What he essentially did was he removed and edited out all the bad experiences where he was being a jerk to his wife and only mm. gave her a recording of the best moments. And he just said, see, this is how it always was. You just ignored it. So it was kind of like a little bit of gaslighting, which I found kind of fascinating from a character standpoint is that obviously knew this is a fabrication. You know, he's showing her 10% mm -hmm. of their life together versus the full picture. But somehow, you know, Natalie Wood's character, Karen, just kind of goes along with it and says, I see what you're trying to say, which that was kind of a funny moment to me because I'm like, wow, this is gross manipulation. I mean, he's, he was a jerk. I mean, they show a little montage of how terrible he was. You know, it's like from refusing <laughs> to change baby diapers to, you know, yelling at his wife. I mean, didn't think he was the greatest guy, but he found all the snippets from the very beginning of their relationship and offered it up as presentation of the whole, which I, I thought was kind of neat. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I never thought, I never thought of it that way, but I guess you're right. Like he was just like, the best of da, 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 like, <laughs> and, and that's really funny interesting um and then you yeah, know his, the second half of after he gets back together with his wife he just sort of becomes your standard guy who wants to explore the mind and and travel into the afterlife spoiler alert if anyone hasn't seen it after four decades that's your fault <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna spoil a lot of things here um but yeah so you know the ending uh it's interesting. A lot of these movies where you're talking about simulations or you're talking about afterlives or memories often is that the, the main character uh, goes into that afterlife. That's the that's the journey, right? They go from a human and they go into the afterlife. I think that Douglas Trumbull got this from the great filmmakers he worked with. So 2001, that's what happens, right? They go yes. from being a, 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 an ape in the opening sequence to a, uh, evolving into a star child in the end. So he literally goes into a black hole or I guess it's not a black hole it's the um it's the monolith but he goes into this giant yeah. monolith and, and gets reborn as a star child and close encounters of the third kind richard dreyfus starts off as just sort of a, a a regular old guy in his town and he then ends up going into the alien spaceship and going off into what is sort of a metaphor for heaven or the afterlife or the unknown or whatever and so this is the uh, another example where they did that but he's able to use all his fancy special effects again uh, that he could regurgitate from uh, <laughs> 2001 in order to achieve that, which I totally get. And hey, if I was Douglas Trumbull, I'd be stealing from the best too. Oh, no doubt. I, that's one thing I think about more often. Because I, mean, I watched this movie as a kid. Um, he used to play on HBO a lot, I remember. And I Ooh. definitely remember getting renting it w at one point with my cousin. You know, like we always picked up sci-fi films whenever I had a sleepover. So I definitely remember seeing this around the same time oh. I saw maybe The Fly with um, Jeff Goldblum. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, uh, the one thing about the main character, Christopher Walken's character, is that he kind of seemed very, he wasn't as active when you really think about the overall plot of the movie. He, he, he said he had a desire. He wants to watch and feel the tape, but he didn't really say why. It was mostly about, hey, I, I just want to experience it. You know, like she left this for me because it's essentially a scientific document documenting her death. But it didn't really feel like he was that eager. You know what I mean? It didn't seem like I have to do this. I'm driven. I'm obsessed. It was more like, I got to do it, I guess. And it, that was the funny thing about the character. It definitely felt like he wasn't as driven compared to other like 1980s obsessive scientist movies. I mean, right. you could definitely tell like the through line was always those decisions, but they didn't really tap, tap into it that much. Yeah. 
True. And, you know, if even Christopher Walken, his, you know, we've actually covered another one of his movies on here called Videodrome, which is another uh, kind of, wait a minute, was Christopher Walken in Videodrome? No, that was oh, James Woods. That's James Woods. He was, Christopher Walken was in uh, J David Cronenberg's next movie called The Dead Zone. That's right. We yeah. have not covered The Dead Zone, but we covered Videodrome. But he, he was in this kind of like uh, horror B late night uh, on HBO kind of uh Part of his career at this point when he was still getting full to full Christopher Walken mode. He hadn't quite on there yet. He's still exploring the that realm. So funny. Um, anyone else, of course, has any thoughts on the characters, the movie, whatever, Cordelius or Jinx or whoever, uh, please use the raise hand option. We'd love to hear from you. We're going to keep uh, moving right along here in the meantime. We should talk about Louise Fletcher's character for just a moment. Um, I, and I get I get to tell a little story. I, I worked with oh. Louise Fetcher a number of years ago uh, on this really bad movie called Silverman. Um, but I was like a huge fan of hers from Nurse Ratchet, one for the Cuckoo's Nest, of course. And it's it's so interesting when you don't see someone, they, they sort of become immortalized on screen at the age that they are, right? So I always imagined her as a, you know, a 30-year-old, uh, very stern nurse. And then I met her uh, in the real life, and she is the most beautiful woman, the opposite of Nurse Ratchet. She's very warm, very kind, uh, and, she, you know, she's just, she's a really, really great person. The other memory I have of her uh, is that she was a chain smoker. <laughs> And so in, this <laughs> in movie, real life, I'm, I'm like, in this movie, I'm like, is this going to be a plot point? She's literally smoking. She's literally lighting up sometimes twice in a shot. You're like, what is going yeah. on? Is this... <laughs> and they even talk about it. Like you smoke too much. Like what? And I think that's because yeah. she was just like wanting to smoke on set. I don't know. I noticed there was a lot of business going on with all the actors. There's like the gum chewing guy. There's a cigarette smoking lady. You know, there's a lot of like that, those little actions happening. It almost seemed like, okay, your character trait is you chew gum and smack. Your character trait is you're a chronic smoker. Uh, I did kind of see some of those like kind of eighties tropes. I mean, cause definitely mm -hmm. it felt very early eighties. Cause when people were smoking in a laboratory <laughs> and I'm like, Hold on, there's all this expensive right. equipment. There's like a billion dollar or I guess a million dollar project, whatever, back then. And she's just lighting up a cigarette before they hook him up to all these machines. That cracked me up. But ultimately, it was, I mean, for these films, she was the only one that smoked. And ultimately, she suffered consequences, you know, with her health as far as, you know, the heart issues and hypertension and all that stuff. At least, you know, even for back then, they kind of said, hey, she's unhealthy. But it was like a ticking time bomb. Like the minute he said he smoked too much, I was like, oh, yeah, something bad's going to happen to her. <laughs> right, 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 right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, her character is pretty interesting. I mean, um, you know, she was she was one of the brains of the lab. She was really the one who wanted to keep pushing and keep striving for more. And um, and then it's an interesting idea that she's having. You know, she's really the one who cares the most, it feels like, because when she's having a heart attack, she doesn't think to call 911. She thinks to plug herself into the machine so she can record for science what it's like to go into the afterlife, which is what she ends up doing, right? Um, then, but the, the, but the, the weird part about it is that that sort of gets pushed to the side again. Like, oh, she goes to the afterlife. Uh, Christopher Walken's character experiences half of it, and then the lab shuts him down. And then like a half hour of the movie still has to come where she has to, he has to go and like break in, get the machine and then like see what it was like to head into the afterlife. Uh, it's kind of crazy yeah. that, you know, they found a way to, to draw it out, I guess. 
It was an odd choice because he never explained it to anyone. You know, Cliff Robertson, you know, um, Uncle Ben from the original Spider-Man movies from Sam Raimi. You know, he played yeah. Alex, who was the CEO of the company. And at no point did Christopher Walken's character just say, hey, by the way, what I saw was A, B, C, and D, Afterlife. Instead, he didn't tell him anything, really. All that he was, hey, someone else experienced afterlife experience and died because essentially they had the physical components of the same heart attack. But they never actually, at no point did Chris Walken's character say, hey, this is what I experienced. This is why it's important. That's what I found kind of odd. It's like he never articulated what he wanted in many ways. You know, he just kind of just told his wife and they, they rarely explored it. I mean, maybe if he did go to Alex and say, hey, I just made this amazing discovery. We need to dig deeper. The whole movie would have had a different ending. It, it was a very odd choice. Just kind of leave it hanging for a half hour and then ultimately have a hacking experience, you know, classic 80s film where you hack into something and all the machines go bonkers. And it reminded me of Superman 3 in many ways. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, and, you know, the other, the one other thing before we move on from Louise Fletcher's character that I do appreciate about her is that she was a smart woman uh, who is dedicated to science and she was not a sex symbol because there's a lot of this movie where there's like, it's very like guy oriented in a way, like the, nowadays we notice like oh there's a picture of like a naked woman by the computer and like oh one guy actually goes insane because he puts uh, a porno memory on a loop and has orgasm after orgasm after orgasm yeah. <laughs> and it's like and he like he short circuits his brain from too many orgasms or something like what this is kind of crazy and then another guy's memory is just like going down a slip and slide with bikini babes like you're like oh yes <laughs> this definitely came from the 70s and the 80s can't really <laughs> I think those moments. <laughs> the most hilarious one was when they were replaying um, the previous experiences to the corporate people. And at one point, you see it's the company event and they have scantily clad women delivering like fish and the guy in the goggles. And I'm like, what is going on? This is a company function. And it's right. some very odd things. But that logo was used all throughout the movie. I mean, it's a well-designed logo for the company. And it did make it feel very real. You notice, like, you'll see that logo in the sure. background of everything. I mean, they did, overall, they kept it very real. The characters felt great as far as Lillian. She was, I liked how the women in the movie were very strong. I mean, for a movie from 1981, I mean, Natalie Wood's character, she was mm -hmm. essential to helping save everything, everybody. I mean, Lillian's character, ultimately, was very a strong and aggressive person. She's like, I'm a tough woman. I'm going to do what I need to do. I, I really liked that because back then... Women weren't written as well. I mean, you could definitely see how they would have tried to minimize their roles. But in many ways, women saved the day in this movie. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, all right, so let's move on to the point here, which is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, what the themes and the ideas. There's a lot of ideas they're playing with. If you were to sort of, sort of summarize the big point of the movie, what would you say it is? Well, the big point is, you know, be careful what you wish for. You know, with all forms of technology, there's always a very good aspect of it, but also there's multiple means of abusing technology. And the movie kind of gave us multiple examples of abusive technology, you know, from you know, self-experimentation to focusing solely on pleasure and not having a balanced out life. Um, they kind of kind of tell us how things are now, how people want to activate pleasure centers of their brain digitally and kind of give up other aspects of life. So overall, it felt like, hey, you know, you have to be there for people. You have to be there in the present of sorts, because even though now, you know, Mike's character discovered, hey, there is some sort of afterlife. In many ways, it kind of 
makes him want to experience this current life to its fullest in many capacities. So overall, that's what it felt like. It's like, hey, technology does have a purpose. If you keep it safe, you keep it sound, you keep it balanced, there's some amazing benefits. Uh, I agree. And I think for me, you know, the one thing that I think they really touched on, which we are always talking about here, for those of you who've been to our their episodes about the virtual reality industry and where this is all headed, so much is, a, is, a, is people calling it an empathy machine. I think that they were really onto something with that idea that virtual reality can be an empathy machine. It can be a mind expansion machine if you allow it to, because you're able to experience uh, different points of view than you would otherwise. So, you know, I, uh, I don't know if anyone here has seen um, Malicha Shek's uh, um, virtual reality experience called Tree, where you start as a sapling and then you grow into a small tree and then you become this full-fledged tree where animals are living in you and you're oh. bearing fruit and stuff like that. It does have a twist ending. I am not going to spoil that one. Everyone should go check out the uh, experience tree uh, when it's available. Uh, I saw it at an event, so uh, I don't know if it's available at home yet, but it may be. But that kind of stuff, I, I think uh, they were touching on here. First of all, with relationships, being able to see different points of view, although you could say gaslighting, uh, dealing with <laughs> uh, you know, physical pleasure, sure, uh, but you know, experimentation in that kind of a sense. Um, they were doing mind altering, and then in the end, spiritual awakening, right? Spiritual awareness and being able to transcend uh, your physical body into another plane, which, you know, yeah, they didn't really develop the ideas enough, but I think that that's what they were intended to do. And I think that them going to Esalon before the movie started uh, is, a, is a clue to that, that that's what they were aiming to do, which I think is a, a noble cause. And I think it's a valuable, I think it's also, um, I think it's also where where a lot of the virtual reality ideas are are headed in the sense of expanding your awareness, expanding your uh, experiences, and and all of that. So, um, so I do think they were uh, they had a, a really deep understanding of the technology a long time before. I mean, the, I don't even think the word virtual reality were invented yet. Actually, if you think about it, cyberspace, which was coined by William Gibson, that wasn't until the mid '80s. This is precursor yeah. to that, right? So. Aside from that uh, World on a Wire, um, which was made in Germany by uh, Rainer Werner Fassbender in like 73, aside from that and maybe some maybe uh, parsing uh, mentions in, um, in literature and short stories and things like that, this is really the first time that a, 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 an attempt at a mainstream movie developed the ideas of what virtual reality would become. So you got to give them credit for that. Oh, most definitely. I mean, just the concept of, you know, connecting to a payphone, you know, and have a virtual reality experience via the wires, you know, since this is a pre-cell phone period within the movie, they use the best available technology. That alone is quite fascinating because even a, when you try to do the math, I mean, just imagine how many megabits per second or whatever I can go through like an old phone line. But Overall, that concept of, hey, I have a suitcase, has a computer, all I need to do is connect to the net. I mean, they never used the term internet, um, even though they were essentially using the internet. Um, so it's quite fascinating. Like a lot of these things that we take for granted now, they tapped into in this 1980s movie. I mean, really predicted a lot of what we have today. That's the most fascinating Absolutely. thing about it. Yeah. And, and for those of you who are watching on YouTube a couple of weeks from now, or those of you in the audience here, uh, Gary or Jinx or, or uh, oh, what's that name? Let's see. Uh, Kika from France. How are you doing, Kika? Um, I've just been editing all day the uh, 
Tushabunya episode, which was in French. So hopefully you'll check that out. But uh, if you see the, the pictures here, these are actually angels. They're flying into heaven, essentially. Um, and so kind of interesting ideas that they were dealing with here where they, uh, you know, all the afterlife and spirituality. Oh, and also the eye motif as well. You know, it's like they're all mm -hmm. kind of, you know, descending on this like energy eye of sorts. It also kind of reinforces that, you know, the mind's eye, et cetera. Yeah. And, and to that idea, the other thing that was interesting was when we enter into this out-of-body experience, we start to see bubbles, right? And so those bubbles were sort of like memories, but I like how they visualized it as these bubbles. And I kept thinking back to the end of 2001, A Space Odyssey, where you see these um, you see stars, but then you see bubbles floating in. And I wonder if he had deeper conversations with Stanley Kubrick about what was actually being experienced as they were traveling through the monolith. I don't know, because there, I thought it was a very interesting, because this is also before the multiverse. And the idea now is more common, where we've got all these different multiverse bubbles or, uh, you know, uh, that are traveling through space-time. Um, but um, this was a, lot, a long time before that as well. So you've got these sort of um, I don't know what they call them, spheres or cubes, or, yeah. or, I guess spheres, yeah. In many ways, I saw them as more of um, the replay of memory in a person's mm -hmm. death. You know, they've been doing research into you know, kind of energy fluctuations and, you know, you know, what happens in your brain post-death. And a lot of people, you know, from near-death experiences, especially in the 80s, that's when it became kind of popular when people talked about their life flashing before their eyes. Um, so I thought that's what it was supposed to represent, like these little bubbles of memory that replayed essentially um you know christopher walken's character mike had access to all of her memories because i assumed that it was because she just died and it replayed them all that's what i assumed that, that those bubbles were supposed to represent because he kind of bounced mm -hmm. around to him out of mm -hmm. order to kind of experience mm -hmm. it so i assumed that's what she was giving him was that like you know 15 seconds of her brain finally dying and releasing those memories I, I, that's why I thought that was supposed to represent because remember he kind of bounced around out of order and just kind of mm -hmm. thoroughly enjoyed himself, you know, going through his friends, you know, dead memories, which I found kind of awkward, you know, he just seemed like he was giggling and I'm like, Ooh, this is supposed to be a little more morbid, but that'll be it. Right. right. Yeah. Um, it, it, yeah. It's a, it's an interesting idea that there's that you kind of almost like have these capsules of memory that are floating through the ether that you can then like, enter into uh, almost not unlike a teleporter here in all space where you, you know, you yeah. enter into these bubbles or something like that. Um, but um, I think we should, before we move on from the tech, we should mention uh, the aspect ratio and the technology that he was using, which I thought was really, really cool. So he set out to create something called ShowScan, which was 60 frames per second, 70 millimeter film. So for those of you who are not super technical out there, uh, most film is 35 millimeter. Every once in a while, you'll have a filmmaker these days who do 70 millimeter. The, you have higher resolution and you have more depth of color and things like that. So filmmakers like Quentin Tarantino, Pete, Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, and Chris Nolan are really the only three, I think, today who are using 70 millimeter, right? I mean, Tarantino, yeah. uh, Tarantino shot, um, I think, Django and uh, the last Hateful one. Eight. Yes, Eight, I eight, believe Hateful Eight, 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 eight yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson did Faster, um, on and for and maybe Licorice Pizza, and um, and Chris Nolan has done it uh, a number of times with Interstellar and things like, and, and also I think Inception. Um, but the idea yes. uh, in this movie is that um, 
He also changes the aspect ratio. So 70 millimeter is super, super wide. And so you'll, you'll have these really uh, you know, uh, wide black bands on the top and the bottom. And then he'll shrink it down to uh, normal 16 by nine when you're in the real world. So in the real world, we're just getting regular old 16 by nine. But when he enters the virtual world, it's like super real. And he goes to like these 70 mil size and it really stretches out to the edges of the frame. So. This is something that um, Chris Nolan did in Interstellar quite a bit, where you were entering into the black hole or you were time traveling or whatever. Yeah. Pop out to the 70 mil. So I thought that was really neat. He wasn't able to fully succeed creating the show scan technology because of the problems with the budget that we were talking about. And the fact that the, that it's, it's a lot, it, it, there's not many theaters in the world that will screen 70 millimeter. And so that's why it's costly because it's even costly to distribute into uh, to, to screen. Um, but he was able to pull off varying aspect ratios, which I thought was cool. And he wasn't able to change the frame rate. The only filmmaker in modern day that's tried to change the frame rate that I know is Peter Jackson with The Hobbit. Yes. And it didn't turn out very well. It was, for me, when I watched it, I could see the makeup effects on The Hobbits. It was so clear. Yeah. You're like, oh my God, they're wearing makeup. Like the, the illusion is broken almost, right? That was my problem. Um, it's right. when you move the frame rate up that high, you have the soap opera. You know, it feels like you're watching soap opera video. It's been rescanned and sped up. Uh, I would have loved to have seen this film on something like the Cinerama Dome, you know, like a nice dome screen. Because I, I think even though they weren't able to project it at 70 millimeter, I still think on the big screen, some of the effect would have really worked nicely. You know, watching it on home video, of course, you get the full experience, but I still appreciated the attempt. I mean, it was it was a nice visual motif, you know, to keep things consistent between memories in the virtual world versus the real world. That was nicely done. Yeah, no, it was it was it was gutsy too. I think, and and uh, and and they pulled it off to an interesting effect. So even though he wasn't able to change the frame rate, he wasn't able to invent his own millimeter. He he was able to be part of it in seventy million. So that's really cool for for film geeks out there. Uh, that's we we love when you know people try to try something different and take a chance. And so you got to give them credit. Oh yeah. Um, anything else about the tech that we should uh, mention before we dive? Uh, on well i'll tell you the truth that opening title sequence was so well done um with classic you know vector style effects um it kind of reminded me of um you know when you watched the early star wars movies you know they show the death star plans and it's using you know vector effects versus you know digital uh, i did like that you know they use classic you know, film techniques to create a really dynamic you know quote unquote vr opening sequence. I mean, very beautiful. And it's really holds up even today. I mean, and they're just using standard, you know, analog cameras and, you know, essentially like old school techniques. Yep. Yep. Definitely. He was a, he was definitely a master at that. I, I think I have a picture of it later on, but not the next slide. So we'll have to move on to the legacy. I, I just kept focusing on Christopher Walken with this gigantic <laughs> monstrosity on his head. Cause it was so cool. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> We have talked about the legacy. And anyone out there, uh, if you guys have, if you've watched Brain Scan and you know of a movie that it seemed to inspire, let us know. We've mentioned a few. For me, I saw a bunch of Black Mirror episodes. I saw Flatliners, saw Transcendence by Wally Pfister. I saw, um, I saw his. Uh, what's the other ones? Oh, uh, Strange Days. So there's a, you know, it has a long tail of uh, copiers or emulators or any uh, something like that. So. Or no, is there any others that you saw in there? I think you covered all the main ones I could think of. I mean, overall, I mean, as far as VR movies, 
I mean, you still have to put this in, you know, it's an innovative film for the time. And I know so many people that saw it even on home video or on HBO at the time in the mid eighties, I think a lot of young filmmakers are inspired, you know, people from, you know, the last two generations for sure. Well, also, has anyone here? Uh, okay, so I'm, I'm, I bet you everyone here is. So, uh, how many people have here have read the book for Ready Player Two? Not many. Okay, we got. Uh, yeah, so, uh, so Frank Grimes official over there has. So, if you recall, uh, Ready Player Two, the beginning of the book is all about how people. It's like they take YouTube into the virtual age, so people can record. Their augmented reality glasses, when they're out in the day, they can record memories. And then instead of watching it on YouTube, you can actually play back their memory. I don't think it gets to the degree where you can feel their feelings. But the ideas in Ready Player Two actually kind of like this, where it's like you're recording your everyday experiences. And then um, Palmer Lucky, who invented the Oculus Quest, which is now called the MetaQuest, I guess. I don't know. So uh, I'm sure everyone <laughs> here knows more lucky he was like in his basement in Orange County in California and came up with the Oculus just because he was like, wouldn't it be cool to have a virtual reality headset? And he basically launched the modern day virtual reality industry. He sold Quest to Facebook for a billion dollars. Nice uh, basement uh, garage project to, and sell it for a billion dollars. And so he actually says that he believes that a lot of the ideas in this movie are going to come to pass. So he's actually a big fan of this movie, which I think is really fascinating as well. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, just watching the process of miniaturizing. Uh, once again, I really did love the industrial design of each of the props for the hat system. And I love um, how, you know, Natalie Wood's character would introduce new versions of it little by little throughout the movie where it's like, oh, I made a smaller one here. This one's slightly speaker. And by the end, it almost looked like an Apple device. You know, it was very small, sleek, and white. I mean, it, we can see this from Apple in 10 years, essentially. Absolutely. Uh, Frank, we have something to add here. Uh, yes, Frank, can you, uh, you there? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Yeah. Hey. Uh, no, we're just talking about other movies that uh, inspired. Did you ever see Dreamscape with Dennis Quaid? I have not seen oh. Dreamscape. Have you? You know, I may have seen. Yeah. I may have seen parts. That, that's because a, a like kid who knew works on a dream sharing project, and David Patrick Kelly, of course, is evil in it, and <laughs> you know, have to like go into each other's dreams, and he's good. He's got George Wine. Very cool. That's a good baby. Uh, baby Futurosity uh, for his flicks. We'll uh, that one on yeah, the that... docket for next time. That's a good uh, good suggestion. Thank you. Definitely. I can't, I can't remember if I've seen that or not, but that's... Um, uh, I have these vague VHS memories of so many sci-fi right. films I watched as a kid. <laughs> so a lot of them start to blend together. I'm like, which slumber party did I see that at? You know, that's how it feels right. half the time. Right. I definitely remember totally. seeing that one. <laughs> totally. um, all right, you know what time it is. Oh, wow. 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 That's why it's wow time. Wow score time. All right. So everyone here also could give us wow score. Uh, Ted Wows is like, this is the most amazing movie I've ever seen. Zero Wows is like, why the hell did I waste two hours of my life? Um, let's do it. You want to go first? I think mine's a pretty easy one this time around. Okay. Tell you the truth, I would give this a solid six because 
It was entertaining, you know, I mean, it's still a, a fun watch, um, but it's mostly the fun part is the meta story that you're creating in the back of your head versus what you're seeing on the screen. Because so many of the concepts they bring up are so fascinating that you want to play with the idea and you're like, oh, I hope they do this. I hope they do that. They don't necessarily achieve and answer every single question that they bring up, but it was a great try. And as far as the technology and the presentation of it, I definitely feel like it's so influential that I couldn't go any lower than a six. I mean, I could rewatch it again tonight if I want to, because it's still, there's still an entertainment value to it. Christopher Walken's performance is a bonkers Christopher Walken's early performance. Overall, visually, I thought it was beautiful too. So I, I give it a six. Got it. Okay, great. All right. Uh, oh, good. Blue Moon has her uh, a wow score here. Yes, Blue. Um. I I love the movie. I've seen it multiple times. I I uh, rewatched it today just to, to get like familiar with it again. Um, give it. I'm stuck between a six and a seven just because of the time that it was made. It was like way ahead of its time. Like like right now we're wearing we're right now we're wearing headsets on our head, and they were thinking about this back in like 1983. So it's like it's crazy. The only thing that bothered me was like. At the beginning of the movie, they had this big, huge, like, computer on on Christopher Walken's head. And by the end of the movie, it was a sleek little tiny thing. But uh -huh. they were still using these friggin' apes that were this wide. And, like, you had to steam it all <laughs> through these machines. And I'm like, you right. couldn't fix that when you came, like, <laughs> within two hours, you, you, you shrunk the headset down to this tiny little thing. But you're still on this damn friggin' data strip. It's like it was, that didn't make any sense to me. But um, and and and, and the, the, the character the the characters were kind of, I don't know. It was it was like you know one person did this and then then that was it. That that storyline right. was finished. And then then you know one did this and then th then that was finished. It was like they never really went into depth about like with the characters. And then um, <laughs> um um uh, was it uh, Lillian? I'm not. I I always forget names. So she she right. was. They just made her this hardcore lab person. Like she they they didn't show her being personal like like you know it was just mm. like you know it was just one stream like for her her whole life she even went to to the um to get her accolades and she was still wearing her damn lab coat it's just like <laughs> you couldn't put her in like it was so crazy it was like you couldn't right. put her in like you know a suit or something but and then and then like the first scene it was like her smoking so it was like you know to, to give the audience you know okay you know she's unhealthy something's going to happen to her so it's like you kind of figure because she was just they made a point of showing her smoking 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 so you you know you kind of figured it's like okay something's gonna happen but um i i still love the movie it was like way ahead of its time um i loved like futuristic stuff like that so it had me from the get but um yeah I, I'd, I'd say i'm stuck between a six and seven so i'd give it six and a half yeah it, okay. was, it was it was a really good like i i can watch it again in 10 years and, and still be impressed by it so yeah very cool. Love it. Mm -hmm. um, okay, well, cool. Thank you. That's awesome. I, uh, if anyone else wants to go, if not, I'm going to dive in with mine. And believe it or not, today, I'm usually the tough critic. And today, I guess I loved it more than anyone. I was sort of surprised at how much I enjoyed the ideas. You know, if anyone has watched this show, they know that I'm a sucker for ideas. And if you can give me a bunch of ideas in a movie, I'm going to forgive you some of its flaws. And this one had, uh, uh, um, like, like it had like five Black Mirror episodes crammed into one, you know, 
30 years before Black Mirror even existed. So um, give it a seven and a half, guys. Oh, wow. I give it a seven and a half. I think it was like up there and it was better than I was expecting it to be. I mean, the performances were great. Uh, the the direction was great. The technology was great. Um, you know, so I, I don't know. I guess, uh, you know, like, I, it got me. It got me. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, well, all right. So, uh, yes, here, and here's the vector graphs, uh, you're talking about. So anyone oh. on YouTube or our, uh, the simulation nation on Instagram, I'll be posting these and there's a lot of vector graphics that are really neat. Um, very, uh, similar to, uh, Star Trek in 2001. Um, so, um, so this was, this was another episode, uh, Futurosity. Uh, what do we have next time, uh, for the flicks and picks? Oh, well, coming up next, flicks and picks. Let's see. We have a whole bunch on my list, but I believe. Let's see. Next up. I I believe it's Trod Legacy, right? Oh, my goodness. I don't know why I just had a brain hiccup. You're right. I think I was connected to the Matrix. Yes. (laughs) Tron Legacy. I can't wait. Yeah. Great. So uh, Tron Legacy, that's going to be in like four weeks or something like that. We've got to, I think you're probably thinking we have a bunch of other. Uh, uh, co-hosting yeah. <laughs> events we're doing here. Uh, so that's probably what you're thinking. Um, but um, how can people get in touch with you if they want to reach out, if they want to recommend a new movie for Futurosity's Flicks and Picks? Uh, where should they reach out to you? Oh, please reach out to me at Futurosity VR. I'm available on Instagram and I love to have chat. So just say hey anytime. Cool. Uh, all right. Well, thank you, everybody, for teleporting into this broadcast of Simulation Nation. Whether you're with us in virtual reality, listening to the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or watching in glorious Technicolor on YouTube, which apparently our YouTube is blowing up, so you got to watch on YouTube. Uh, and remember to subscribe to our Instagram at the Simulation Nation, Twitter at Simulation, our inner Discord server. Join us next week for the CEO of Immerse Me. Scott Erdwell. Uh, that's going to be super cool because it's about learning languages in VR. So, let's start for that one. Till then, stay plugged, my friend.